We're winding down the month of February, designated as Black History Month, which was first celebrated as Negro History Week in 1926 and expanded to a month in 1986 by the United States Congress. According to the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, the designation began in 1915 when University of Chicago alumni Carter G. Woodson traveled from Washington, D.C. to participate in a national celebration of the 50th anniversary of emancipation. And, according to Fund for Teachers fellow Praisha Jordan, students need to remember that black history didn't start or end then or with slavery. Welcome to Fund for Teachers, the podcast. I'm Carrie Caton, and the goal of each episode is to elevate teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. Today, we're learning from Praisha Jordan, teacher at O'Donnell Middle School in Houston, Texas. Last summer, with a Fund for Teachers grant, Praisha retraced the transatlantic slave trade through historical sites in Europe, Africa, and North America to create multimodal 3D virtual learning experiences that allow students to deepen content knowledge and make personal connections to the past and its continued relevance to our present. Praisha is active on social media, producing her own podcast, and also active as the mother of two young children with another on the way. Since her fellowship, Praisha has been named Teacher of the Year at her school, for her district, and as a finalist for her region. We were able to catch up with her to learn more about her fellowship and its epiphanies, and how she's sharing both with 8th grade students who have a lot of questions about how we got to this point in history, literally and figuratively. We are here with Praisha Jordan, Houston fellow, and I'm a tad intimidated because in the past year alone, in addition to her fellowship, which is incredibly inspiring, Praisha was named the Campus Teacher of the Year, the District Teacher of the Year, the Regional Teacher of the Year finalist, and the Houston Area Alliance of Black School Educators Teachers of the Year, for which she was honored this week. In light of all of those things, I guess I would say that we're most proud to call you a Fund for Teachers Fellow. So thank you for being here with us today. And I'm going to start this conversation the way that we have started all of our episodes for the past three years with the question, why did you become a teacher? Oh, I love education. I was thinking about this this past week. I was just reflecting on like what it meant for me to be a teacher and, and specifically what it meant for me to be a Black educator. Um, and I was thinking about all of the Black educators that I had who poured into me throughout my school year life. My first Black educator was my mom. <laughs> she was a Sunday school teacher, um, but I had so many educators who took time with me, who mentored me. And so to become one of the most important figures in my life to me was, I mean, it just made sense. And what path did that take for you to become a teacher, Aprecia? I knew I wanted to be a teacher, but for me, the most important part was being able to understand people, to understand how people think, how they feel, how to cultivate environments that allow people to thrive and be their best selves. I went to UT for undergrad and I, I got a degree in psychology and I also have a degree in communication science and disorders. And then when I went to grad school, immediately after that, I went to the University of Houston and I have my master's in um, educational counseling. And so then I went on to like the content part <laughs> and I actually ended up in history completely not on purpose. 
Can you tell me why or how you came to Fund for Teachers? When I saw Fund for Teachers, I was like, oh, this is it. <laughs> I, I'm going to figure out what exactly it is that I need. Um, and so when I first found out, I wasn't eligible for it yet. Meaning you hadn't taught for three years, I'm assuming. Right. Yeah. When I first heard about it, I had not yet taught for three years. So I was like, okay, that's going to be on my teacher to-do list um, as I you know, grow in the classroom, grow in my pedagogy and grow in education. I think I remember hearing from you that you didn't apply just one time for this fellowship. Is that correct? It is correct. Yes. So I applied the first time. I was super excited. And then I got rejected and I was super hurt. We don't say <laughs> rejected, so, Gracia. Um, we don't use that word. Delayed. Not denied. Delayed. There you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, so the first time I did it, I, I applied and I got feedback from other people who had applied and gave me insight. And then also, I think the second time around, I really personalized my story more. And going back to the rubric where I talked about using data and also using personal information to paint the portrait of why this excursion mattered, I added more of that the second time around. Um, And so I think that it's also part of what made the difference. (laughs) Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you did. And I I wanted you to share that because... We, we get so many applications and unfortunately, and if, if anyone out there wants to step up and help us fund more, then you can contact yes. us at fundforteachers.org because have, yeah, we have so many worthy teachers with noble aspirations and we can't fund everything. And yeah. so your, your situation, the delay of your fellowship is more normal than teachers would think, but then that gets us to your fellowship and I can read what your fellowship project description was, but I think it would be much more powerful if you just tell us what you decided to pursue and why with your fellowship that happened last summer. Absolutely. As a U.S. history teacher, um, I teach eighth grade U.S. history. And so we cover colonization through reconstruction. And a part of that spectrum is the transatlantic slave trade. And so what was really interesting to me would be to go back and traverse some of the major ports on that route. In the TEKS, we talk a lot, the TEKS are our state standards. Um, And we talk about the transatlantic slave trade. We talk about the exchange of people for property. um, And we talk about the middle passage. And in that conversation, it's very limited. And when it got to the transatlantic slave trade, I realizing my my content knowledge was very limited. There's a picture of the triangular trade on a map that has the three little points. And that was really the extent of what I knew. And so I wanted to change that. And I thought fun for teachers would be the excellent opportunity to do that because I wanted to change that experientially. So I retraced the transatlantic slave trade and I went to Liverpool. I went to Accra. And then I went to Charleston. Accra and Ghana. And you did the first two, I think from a logistical standpoint, it's important to point out that you did the first two at the same time. And then you came back. You're also a mother of two young children. And then you went to Charleston at at the end of the summer or later in the summer. Can you kind of touch on maybe one spot in each place that that was paramount to your learning? Something that you didn't know, maybe? Um, So... A lot of it is going to be connected to the water, right? And if you know anything about stereotypes about Black people, us and water don't mix. 
And, you know, people who like really do deep research on that will talk about the tense relationship that Black people have with water because of the transatlantic slave trade. But a lot of my like most poignant parts and experiences were connected to the water. Liverpool, even though it did not participate in the actual slave trade, was a very key part of it because it's where they built a lot of the boats and the ships that were used to traverse to the Caribbean and back and forth between Britain. And so standing in that space and taking in how beautiful it was, how gorgeous it was, and then being able to like close my eyes and listen to the sound of the water and think about what that environment would look like and sound like and feel like in a different era of time, it transports you. I visited the Slavery Museum in Liverpool and one of my favorite things that they have that is actually inspiration for a project that my students are going to do towards the end of the year is they have, on the Albert Docks, they have um, a window And there's a sign right by the window that talks about what you would have seen outside of that window during this time period. And so it's like that here and now and the past and the present kind of colliding in a very tangible way. Mm -hmm. And when I was in Ghana visiting the Mato Slave River, stepping into that water I, I didn't have words then. I've tried to find words since then to be able to kind of describe it. But thinking about the last bath that my ancestors took before they traversed the ocean and standing in that water in a beautiful summer day, my feet in the rocks, in the water, it's calm. It's peaceful. And that's jarring because thinking about how peaceful I felt in that moment and knowing how disturbed my ancestors felt having that same experience. It was kind of like a 360 because I'm able to come back and have this moment because they survived, because they did not give up. And so again, connecting with the water, standing um, on the coast, the Gold Coast, when I went to go visit some, some of the slave castles, it's very overwhelming thinking about the fear, the unknown, and the legacy that my ancestors would have to traverse so that I could get back here. It was just life-changing. When I went to go visit Charleston, you know, in my research, I learned that a lot of historians believe that about 80% of Black people can trace some of their ancestry through Charleston um, because it was a major entryway. I never knew that. Um, and so when I went to Charleston and took my family with me. Your son is two and how old is your daughter? They're young. They're little. So my yeah. daughter, she's six now and my son is three, but they were two and five yeah. during the summer when we went. And so, you know, of course they wanted to go to the beach and we went after a day where we went to go visit um, the McLeod Plantation. The video that you are filming your children as they are frolicking, skipping through Oak Alley in front of this McLeod Plantation. And you just saying, this is so powerful for Mm -hmm. for, for me to see my children experiencing Black joy in this place. Earlier that day, my daughter at five was able to put her thumbprint on a thumbprint that was left by a child around her age and about her size on the side of a building 
where enslaved people were kept. And the tour guide that we had was telling us about how children around her age would work on the plantations because of their small hands and their ability to be nimble. And so being intentional about curating opportunities for joy to exist in their lives, very important to me. How do you translate that type of energy that honors the past and inspires the future with this in the middle, this transatlantic slave story? How do you make that happen with your eighth grade students? So that's always the hardest part, right? I've had these transformational experiences and I'm like, okay, how do I bring that back to my classroom? And so it's very overwhelming because I want to jam pack everything in. But one thing that being in the classroom for a decade has taught me is that it's small pieces at a time. And so originally I was like, okay, I'm going to go in and I'm going to do this whole entire rework of our curriculum. But honestly, I was still processing my own experiences when school started. We just came back from Charleston at the end of July and school started August 2nd. But there is such value in not just trying to push something out. We tell our, our fellows to go where the learning takes you. And that learning requires reflection. It and does. So it's just so wise of you to come back and realize I cannot teach this very important topic with zero days of reflection. Yeah. And I think one of the things about Fun for Teachers that also makes us unique is that we don't require a curriculum by December. We don't require you to create a web page with resources that you've curated. Mm-hmm. That work, it, it evolves. And it does. And so that's why we're grateful that we're still in touch with so many of our 9,000 fellows because the work changes wow. as the history changes and as mm-hmm. our students and what they're dealing with change. So I, I, again, I just applaud your, your um, self-awareness to say, I've learned a lot and our students need to learn a lot. I need to take some in-between time, take a middle passage as it were, and say, what does this mean to me? And what will it mean to my students? And how do I present this in age-appropriate ways, as you mentioned, and in ways that they can process um, in a safe space? And I think that goes back to fun for teachers, trusting teachers, because it's about like that I, as a practitioner, have that space to say, okay, here's what my plan was. And now that I've had this experience, Here's how I'm processing it. Here's how I'm revising my plan. Here's how I'm making changes based off of what I learned. I didn't know. I had questions, but I didn't know what the answers were. <laughs> and so learning about those answers changes and it impacts me. And it impacts how I want to present those answers or how I want to repackage them for my students. And so again, being trusted as a, a professional, as a practitioner, as the expert, here's what I need to do for my kids. And here's what's going to be good for us in the long run. And here's how I'm going to continue to learn and grow is going back to trusting that teachers are doing the job that we signed up to do, knowing how hard <laughs> that it would go, it was going to be to do it and that we're doing the work and it is work. So what I'm doing is breaking it into small parts instead of doing the whole curriculum rewrite all at one time and incorporating small things at a time, especially around a topic as sensitive as slavery. 
And so I've been more calculated than I was probably ambitious with taking care to make sure that I'm not traumatizing my kids or focusing really on on Black pain and suffering and not also highlighting Black joy and survival. And so we cover the actual transatlantic slave trade early in our content. Um, However, what I have been doing is weaving Africa in throughout the year. So like even now, we're celebrating Black History Month, of course, and uh, we're doing door decorations. And so it's like, hey, I have fabric that I got from the McCullough Market when I was in Ghana. My kids, of course, they know about my, my excursions and stuff by now. So I'm like, I have lots of fabric that we can use in the backdrop of our decorations. And so we talk a lot about how Black history doesn't start with slavery. (laughs) Like there was Black history before there was slavery. And slavery is not just Black history. It's white history. It's American history. It's British history. It's Portugal history. It's not just ours. And so in contextualizing that conversation, I'm weaving in parts and pieces throughout the year instead of just focusing on this really intense experience at the time that that content is taught, but I'm always kind of like referencing back to it. You talked about how you learned so much and that there was a, there was maybe a gap in your own personal understanding about this topic, Mm -hmm. but in your proposal, I was reading back and, and it seems as if your students didn't know much about this time period either. Some of the questions that you listed that they asked were like, why did Africans sell other Africans into slavery? Did they know what slavery was like in the U.S. when they sold them? Why did European countries like England choose Africa instead of other countries to get slaves from? Did any African people ever try to fight back and were any successful? Mm -hmm. Those are, again, incredibly powerful, insightful, poignant, hard questions. Do you find (laughs) that you're the first teacher who is addressing these topics with them at this level? I think it's kind of hard, especially, you know, in history, we talk a lot about media and sourcing. And so sometimes the kids have ideas about their answers to these questions that they've gotten from random TikToks on the internet or posts that go viral, but that are not accurate. And I do love that they are generating these questions, that they have this curiosity. And so sometimes that's contentious and it comes out in very middle school-like ways. But in other times, they're very curious and they're very thoughtful about how we came to be where we are and how that could have happened and unfolded differently. Those questions really challenged me because I didn't have the answers to them. Some of them, I was like, I think this is kind of how it goes, or I think this is it, but I wasn't really sure. And I felt like these questions deserved really poignant, accurate, meaningful answers that were contextualized. And that's the hard part in teaching history is always kind of trying to bring that context into it. Because yes, did African people sell other African people into slavery? That happened. But when you open up some of the context around colonization and imperialism and white supremacy, and you mix that into how tribal slavery and how the slave system and what it meant at that time is different than our concept and our ideas for slavery today. It really makes that context different. And so it's it's really helping students and, you know, I mean, educators like ourselves 
really be intentional about not just going for the simple answers uh, or not just going for the answers that are comfortable and glossing over the things that are hard to talk about, but carving out that time to say your questions matter. And because they matter, I want to be intentional about answering them and also be intentional about giving you context around them in a way that's age appropriate. Mm. I had one of my kids come back to me, like after we had had our lesson, we were in a whole different unit, um, but she wanted to write an essay about what we had talked about earlier for an entirely different project, for an entirely different class. And for me, that was a moment she was like, can I come and sit with you and talk to you more about your experience? Because I remember what you were telling us about how slavery in Africa was a different process than chattel slavery in America. And I wanted to write about this for a different essay. And can I come and sit with you? And of course, I was like, oh, yes, come see me at lunch and I'll bring my book and I'll show you some different sources. And so for me, that was like just a little reassurance that even in doing the small changes and in weaving it throughout, that it's making an impact because they're thinking about this and they're making their own connections to it in other content and in other moments and interactions. And it's bringing them back to the conversations that we've had and the experiential things that we've done. Um, and so it's like, okay, that, that works. It doesn't have to be this whole overwhelming, radical, you know, immersive thing at once. But as long as I'm intentional about circling back to and recalling and then moving forward, that that works as well. I could talk to you. I feel, I feel like you're a student. I was like, can I come sit with you? Can I come sit with you? And and uh, so if I end up at your lunch one day at your desk, don't be surprised. But so just kind of winding up about your fellowship, it, we are in the selection phase of our of our grant cycle right now, and we will announce our new fellows in a couple months. Yay. I know it's always so exciting to see. But what would you say to teachers who might be considering applying for this grant in the fall? Do it. <laughs> So the process of applying, of being delayed, but not denied, is something I share with my students. Before um, this year, I taught AVID and history. I mean, AVID is an elective that's focused on um, secondary readiness, post-secondary readiness, so college, career, your professional life. Um, So in that class, we talk a lot about applying for scholarships, applying for schools, and, and applying for grants and things of that nature. And we practice that by doing actual applications for scholarships that are age appropriate for them. And so I I share how I apply and I show them my application. I show them all the stuff that I have to write. They're like, whoa, it's like it's they're not just giving you money for no reason, y'all. You have, you have to show them why they should invest in you because it's an investment. Um, and so I share with them my no thank you letter for from 2020. And I talk about that process of processing my emotions, of looking within and making changes and adjustments, and then going back to the drawing board and then reapplying. And then there's they all cheer when I show them my congratulatory email and they're super excited about it. And so for teachers who are in that same process, we're, we're not much different than our students. It can be, you know, nerve wracking, putting yourself out there, taking a risk, coming up with a plan, an idea that you think is great, and then doing your best, especially given 
all of the things that educators are concurrently doing, finding the time (laughs) to do that for yourself and for your growth, it, it can be a challenge. But I would definitely say apply and then reapply if you need to and reapply if you need to do it after that, because it's worth it. And I think that if you have an idea or a concept of how you think you can make a difference and really impact your students by impacting yourself as a facilitator in your classroom, it's worth it. And there are not a lot of opportunities like the thing that blew my mind the most about this fellowship was that I was really able to curate something that would be meaningful for me as an individual and also have an impact on hundreds of students. And I was able to do that specifically for the kids that I served. And so for me, that was super important. And I think that Fund for Teachers has this unique opportunity within itself to trust educators as the facilitators of their own learning, that we know what we need. We know our kids. Um, We know what context we're teaching in. We know what state and what standards that we have and we understand the experiences that our kids are in and how to best serve them and then you allow us to make that possible I mean it's really powerful that you allow teachers to take their learning into their own hands in the same way that we would want our students to be responsible for their learning and I don't know a lot of programs that trust teachers in that same way. And I think given the climate that we're in, where so many people have so much to say about what educators should be doing and what we're not doing, that Fund for Teachers is a place that says, no, you are the paid professional. You are the expert in your classroom. You know yourself. You know your content. You know your kids. And we're here to support and fund you so that you can do what you do best please apply. Please (laughs) do it. It is absolutely worth it. If there was ever evidence of an investment that pays rich, rich dividends, it's Praisha Jordan and the narrative that you're teaching and the way that you're modeling humility and finding things you don't know and then sharing when you don't win is as powerful as the narratives that you serve because you're giving them lifelong academic information, but also life skills. And it's just, um, it's beautiful to watch. And we're just so grateful to call you a Fun for Teachers fellow and look forward to seeing all of the, uh, as you talk about the water, but all the ripple effects that are going to happen from your knowledge and your courage. Thank you so much. A Fun for Teachers fellow is definitely one of my most prized titles. The day that I got um, email, I'm sure there's video of me at my school skipping down the hallway. I always play that video in my head because I'm sure they can run the tape and see me (laughs) skipping down the main hallway of our building. I love that image of you skipping down the hall because it brings back to me your children skipping down Oak Alley at the plantation. It's a generational story, right? History is, is a story. And the story that you are sharing and that you are amplifying and that you are living and that you are passing on to the next generation. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's all about. That is, that's it right there. We look forward to using this podcast to elevate more teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. But you can learn from more than 9,200 Fund for Teachers fellows now by visiting fundforteachers.org slash blog, or check us out on Facebook, 
Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you to Fun for Teachers fellow Praisha Jordan for sharing with us today about her fellowship retracing the transatlantic slave trade on three continents. You can follow Praisha on Instagram at prayer and pedagogy, on Twitter at prayer underscore pedagogy, and listen to our podcast, Seven Minutes in Heaven, a devotional for educators on Spotify. If you are a Fun for Teachers fellow, please consider applying for an Innovation Circle grant for up to $1,500 beginning March the 2nd to create independent learning around how to place students at the center of your teaching and then collaborate with other fellows to make it happen. The application will be available online at fundforteachers.org. And watch for our newest cohort of Fund for Teachers fellows announced on March the 28th on our social media platforms. I'm Carrie Caton. Thank you for joining us today at Fund for Teachers, the podcast. Until next time, keep learning.